This is Jamda on the go, your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for a BPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Jamda on the Go for December 2023. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Barbara Resnick, one of our two co-editors-in-chief of Jamda, the Journal of the Study of Post-Acute Long-Term Care Medicine. This afternoon, we're also delighted to have the opportunity to interview the lead author of one of the JAMDA articles from our December issue. In addition to our interview, your editors have chosen three other articles we'll be highlighting from the December issue that we think will be of particular interest to our listeners. These include a paper focused on early detection of influenza outbreaks in long-term care facilities as a way to prevent the need for hospital transfers, then a study focused on balance confidence and its association with gang speed and falls among older adults, the administration of the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, or MOCA, via video conference. These include a paper focused on early detection of influenza outbreaks in long-term care facilities as a way to prevent the need for hospital transfers, then a study focused on balance confidence and its association with gait speed and falls among older adults, and the administration of the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, or MOCA, via video conference, and finally, a paper on the association between dental diseases, oral hygiene care, and the risk of dementia. So Barbara Resnick, PhD, CRNP, is a professor in the Department of Organizational Systems and Adult Health at the University of Maryland School of Nursing. She teaches in the Adult Gerontological Nurse Practitioner Program and Doctoral Program and Barb also co-directs the Biology and Behavior Across the Lifespan Research Center of Excellence. She holds the Gershowitz Chair in Gerontology, does research in all settings of care, and has over 40 years of clinical practice, which is currently in assisted living and senior housing communities. Uh, additionally, it's an honor to start our discussion today with Jonathan Tempty, MD, PhD, a professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. John has an extensive variety of research and teaching experience and received the Resident Research Award in 1993 and the Baldwin-Lloyd Clinical Teaching Award in 1996. He served as the director of the Wisconsin Research and Education Network, or REN, from 2000 to 2005. John also chaired the American Academy of Family Physicians Commission on Science in 2008 and currently chairs the Wisconsin Council on Immunization Practices. He served as the AAFP liaison to the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, from 2004 to 2008, and he was appointed as a voting member of ACIP from 2008 to 2015, and actually chaired it from 2012 to 2015. John has also been active on pandemic, influenza, and bioterrorism working groups for the state of Wisconsin. His current research interests include viral disease surveillance in primary care, use of absenteeism monitoring in schools as early warning for influenza outbreaks, early detection of influenza in long-term care facilities, seasonality and epidemiology of influenza, 
attitudes towards immunization and assessment of workload in primary care settings. Wow, that is a lot, and you've been at it for a while. So, John, Barb, welcome to Jam on the Go. Well, thank you so much, Carl. It's been a pleasure to, to join you today. Yep, I agree. Thanks, Carl. I'm glad to be here. All right, so today we're going to be discussing Dr. Tempty's article in this issue of JAMDA, and it's a randomized trial entitled Rapid Detection of Influenza Outbreaks in Long-Term Care Facilities Reduces Emergency Room Visits and Hospitalization. And hey, who doesn't want to reduce emergency room visits and hospitalization, right? So, so John, can you please start out by telling us a little bit more about yourself and your team on this paper? Well, certainly. Long-term family physician. Uh, practicing pretty much full-spectrum care until about four years ago when I got a job as an associate dean for public health and community engagement. But over my career, really focused a lot of my attention on respiratory viruses and influenza in particular. And so tried to build upon my clinical experience, my interest in respiratory viruses, and we pulled together a team that had a very nice, compatible set of skills for the study. We had a couple of my colleagues from the Wisconsin State Laboratory of Hygiene, which is a world-class public health lab. Uh, our state influenza epidemiologist, one of my colleagues from our department who's a biostatistician and health economist, and I'd be remiss uh, to not mention uh, Dr. Irene Hamrick, who's a family physician and a gerian, uh, geriatrician with a lot of experience in long-term care. And then finally, rounding out our team, uh, a couple of my team members from our research team, uh, one who is wonderful with coordination and the other being a regulatory specialist, being able to do all those things to keep data and all the other regulatory items in full would really helped us out a lot. I'm sure and nursing homes are uh, very highly regulated places. So uh, it's always good to have somebody that's that's familiar with that. So, uh, I mean, maybe it's obvious, but uh, can you tell our listeners what the impetus was for exploring this issue? Absolutely. Well, I think at the bottom line, this was essentially a study about timing or mm. in terms of delays of time. We looked at long-term care facilities and it was a very low leap to consider these areas as one of the highest risk settings for communicable diseases such as influenza. And since the time we completed the study, SARS-CoV-2 made its emergence and really created a lot of devastation and havoc across the entire world of long-term care. But what we did is came up with our basic hypothesis, which was as follows. For individuals living in long-term care facilities, does the use of a broadened surveillance criteria of influenza-like illness coupled 
with the use of on-site rapid influenza diagnostic testing compared to usual care result in increased early antiviral treatment for flu, increased use of antiviral prophylaxis, fewer hospitalizations, reduced mortality, and lower healthcare utilization during the influenza season. So it is fairly straightforward, but I have to give this one caveat at this point in time. This was meant to be a pilot study. We wanted to develop an approach that we could apply to a larger grant. But as it turns out, we found some very powerful outcomes, even with this very small trial. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's exciting. And, and obviously, uh, probably for, for payers and also for those of us that care for folks in these places, uh, if we can avoid a hospitalization, we are absolutely doing God's work, right? I mean, we uh, hospitalizations are not kind to to the folks we look after. Um, so, did you encounter any challenges in conducting the study? It sounds like uh, COVID hit uh, during it. Is that right? Uh, any other any other issues? We started the data was completed uh, by middle of autumn 2019. So we escaped COVID's okay. wrath. On the flip side, one of the problems we did encounter was having everything put together and our entire team losing the ability to wrap things up because we all got detailed for COVID response. And literally, it took until things lightened up for us to pull everything together and finalize our reporting on this. But it was a, a very pragmatic trial. Uh, and I think this helped us out a lot. We had very easy recruiting. We initially identified 44 potential sites across the state of Wisconsin, and 20 of them agreed. Uh, it was very, very easy recruiting. And over the three-year study, we had absolutely no dropout. Uh, all the files continued. And we did this uh, with internal funding uh, here at the School of Medicine and Public Health, we have something called the Wisconsin Partnership Program, which is an endowment from an insurance company settlement as they went from a uh, nonprofit to a profit uh, center. And then we also had incredible support by the provision of rapid testing supplies and analyzers by Quidel Corporation. So we were able to do this uh, three-year randomized control trial fairly inexpensively. Wow. Well, that's great. Sounds like not a lot of challenges, and uh, that's uh, that's always a blessing. So, uh, in short, what were the results of the trial? You, you got a lot of a lot of outcomes you were looking at endpoints. Uh, uh, how did it look? Well, there were four major things that we uh, we found. First and foremost, we found that swabs collected for rapid influenza testing could be repurposed for ongoing surveillance in this high-risk population. And in fact, we published uh, this in JAMDA in 2020. Second, we found that the rapid influenza diagnostic tests performed much better than we expected in this population. Normally, there is a drop-off in sensitivity as we get into older individuals 
But across the board, we had about a 75% sensitivity and very high specificity for rapid testing. Third, we found that the directors of nursing and our infection control nurses had high levels of satisfaction with the intervention and found that the implementation was actually very easy. And then fourth, when we get into the meat of the study, we found that the intervention really had some profound outcomes. And our intervention, again, was staff-initiated ease identification, specimen collection, and on-site rapid testing. And by doing this, we found that the use of antiviral medication for prophylaxis of influenza increased by about 38%. The emergency department visits declined by 22%. Hospitalizations declined by 21%. And the length of stay declined by 36%. And keep in mind, we had very significant results with a very, very small, terribly underpowered study. And again, I just have to emphasize, our intent was to get pilot data to support a larger study. Wow. Well, yeah, that's those are pretty impressive results for sure. And the fact that it was uh, kind of well accepted uh, by nursing staff and, and easily incorporated into the workflow, uh, that makes it seem uh, much more likely to be sort of, you know, scalable and widely implementable. So uh, what would you say your take-home messages are from the study and and how, if at all, might the, the work you've done change clinical practice for our listeners? Well, I think the bottom line here is time is of the essence from the time a patient becomes symptomatic to the time that an institution does something about that. It could be medication, it could be quarantining, it could be masking other people. But that time is critical. So the increased awareness of the significance of respiratory viruses in long-term care settings and the implementation of measures to reduce time from that onset to response is really important. And our intervention was just one possible way to get around that. And I think the really important thing here was to delegate authority to nursing staff and to nurse aides to identify, collect specimens, and test without having to wait for uh, send-out laboratory. Sometimes these can take two or three days to come back over which time you've already infected an entire wing. So I think that's the most important thing here. Right. Well, that's that's very practical. And uh, uh, time is always of the essence when it, when it comes to this vulnerable population because, yeah, things can, can spread like wildfire. And uh, uh, that's really true. And it sounds like the next step in research, obviously, is just to sort of uh, – uh, do larger, larger scale studies and uh, see how this process uh, will work uh, uh, and, and with higher numbers and in more facilities. Uh, any other, any other uh, thoughts or goals or, or aspirations as far as further research in this direction? Carl, I agree with you absolutely. Here, I would love to see this study repeated in other locations, 
a larger sample size would really help to allow better analysis of some of the other outcomes. But the other thing that's really exciting right now is we're seeing the advent of new testing, which is rapid, molecular-based, and multiplexed, meaning that instead of just looking for influenza, there are platforms now that can test for influenza, SARS-CoV-2, RSV, and other viruses having results within a matter of 15 to 30 minutes on site and having even higher levels of sensitivity than what we experienced. The last thing I'll mention is we're also seeing an explosion of new technology that allows for anonymous testing. And by this, I mean that we've seen the advent of wastewater testing and air sampling and using these mm -hmm. things to identify when a pathogen is occurring in a facility without knowing who it is, but that can alert us to turn on a system to have higher scrutiny of those people who might be getting sick than the boat more attention there. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, wastewater, uh, I don't know how many facilities that are doing that currently, but, it, uh, and I think, you know, with all of these things, these, these, uh, wonderful, uh, fancy new, new multiplex tests, they're kind of expensive. And I, you know, that, that may be a, a bit of a barrier, but I guess that's, that's for a different podcast. Barb, any comments or questions for Dr. Tenty? Yeah. Well, the only thing that this, I, I really thought this work was terrific as somebody who does a lot of dissemination and implementation research. But I also think what's really an important take-home message here is the interdisciplinary perspective uh, that you took and that really was quite evident. No one, no one discipline can solve all the upper respiratory infections in our settings and really getting the whole team involved is what probably made the difference here. Um, the, you know, my, my only thought always is a little pause over the hospitalization issues because today increasingly and particularly post COVID, there's a lot of issues around hospitalizations that have nothing to do with how sick you are. It might be whether, you know, your child wants you to go or not, you want to go or not. So I, I think we need to look at the hospitalization issues as just one component. Um, maybe looking at symptoms and how people do is more important. But really great work, and we certainly hope you'll uh, move on and do a larger dissemination trial. Well, it, it, it's just piggybacking. Oh, go ahead, John. Oh, I was just going to mention at this point in time, we're working with some of our colleagues to locate error sampling devices within congregate studying areas in long-term care to see if that extremely early detection uh, can help inform when we need to be more careful. I was just gonna gonna kind of uh, piggyback onto what Barb said about, and you mentioned it too, John. That you know the CNAs, uh, like with so many other things, they are 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 absolute uh, 
front line. They know the the residents better than anyone else, and they are going to be the first ones to pick up on symptoms. So we need to make sure the places we work really empower our CNAs to to feel comfortable uh, going to a charge nurse and, and letting them know. And that, that's how you get on these things rapidly. So, John, any any final words? I really appreciate you being on today. Just mentioned. One thing in follow-up to that point, Carl, which I think is really important, what we found in the study is the time from illness onset until sampling, uh, so collecting the specimen, was just a little bit over one day. And when we compare this to the usual care from the time someone becomes sick until you have a result back, we were beating that by, you know, about two days. And that amount of time is just critical with some of these respiratory infections. Yeah, yeah, that is a, a major difference, and uh, certainly speaks volumes toward the the value of of rapid testing. So um, great, uh, that's been some great discussion and perspective, Dr. Tempty. Many thanks for taking the time to chat with us today on Jam Down to Go. This episode will return after this special message. Join your professional community at PLTC. 24. Embark on a memorable journey in San Antonio, Texas, where you'll have the opportunity to fully engage in a dynamic program offering valuable sessions, stimulating discussions, and numerous networking opportunities. While you're in San Antonio, immerse yourself in the city's rich heritage by exploring iconic sites like the Alamo and indulge your taste buds in the vibrant Tex-Mex culinary scene. Experience the enchanting river walk where lively restaurants and shops line the scenic waterways. For those who can join us in San Antonio, we are offering a virtual learning track which will provide you with access to the live stream general sessions, nine live stream sessions, and all concurrent session recordings through March 31, 2024. Visit PILTC.org to learn more and register. And now back to our program. All righty. So, Barb, our second paper for review from the December issue is focused on testing whether there is a relationship between balance, confidence, and gait speed. This one's titled Gait Speed with Falls in Older Fallers, a prospective cohort study by Timothy Kwok, MD, and his team in Hong Kong. This study aimed at examining the modulation between balance, confidence, and gait speed in predicting incident falls. The participants were older adults who were community dwelling, 65 and up, able to walk for 10 meters independently, and who had suffered one or more falls in the last year, and they were recruited from and evaluated at a research clinic. These participants were followed up tri-monthly for 12 months after their baseline exam. Optimal cutoff values were identified by Yowden's index and classification and regression tree analysis. So the associations between gait speed, balance confidence, and falls were estimated with negative binomial regression models. Subgroup analyses for high and low balance confidence were performed. The covariates included basic demographics, cognition, history of depression, history of recurrent falls, and other aspects of physical functioning. Uh, the mean age of the participants was about 71, and 80% of them were female. So 14% of the 461 subjects uh, reported a total of 83 falls. So some of them had, a, had multiple falls. In the pooled analysis and subgroup analysis for the high balance confidence group, high speed uh, defined as greater than 1.3 meters per second, 
showed an increased fall risk compared to the moderate speed, which was 0.8 to 1.3 meters per second. And this had an adjusted odds ratio of 2 to 2.5. So a statistically significant linear association between gate speed and falls was shown in the high balance confidence group. Conversely, in the low balance confidence group, a U-shaped association was evident with an adjusted odds ratio of about 2.2 to 2.6. Uh, and you know, elevated fall risk was found in both the high and low speed groups uh, with a, a relative risk from 1.16 to 3.47. Uh, and uh, you know, that was the high and low speed compared to the moderate speed, right? So they were more likely to fall at high or low speed. So conclusions suggested that there were linear and nonlinear associations between gate speed and falls in people with high and low balance confidence, respectively. Clinicians and researchers should consider the effects of balance confidence when trying to predict falls with gate speed and in formulating fall prevention strategies. So Barb, uh, what do you make of this uh, beyond uh, the, the old adage of speed kills? Because obviously the, the fast walkers in, in both the confidence level groups uh, fell more. I really like this study in many ways because it really confirms what we see clinically. You know, all of us who see that really rapidly walking person, you almost want to say, hey, whoa, slow down. Um, right. But I would make this simple and honestly conclude that people with high gait speed may be at risk for falling and those that have low balance confidence and slower gait speed are also at risk because they're probably doing those things for a reason, right? So I think maybe we need to really encourage a steady speed gait or work towards everybody feeling comfortable with a steady speed gait, where if you're kind of a rapid walker, you're a little more cautious. And if you're a slow walker, you gain the strength and the endurance to move up to a steady speed. So I think the goal really is to be neither a tortoise nor a hare as we get older for fall prevention. Yeah, all things in moderation, like my mom used to say, except or all things in moderation, including moderation. Uh, but yeah, so, and this obviously would have some, some implications for our, our rehab professionals, our, our PT uh, folks. Uh, so that's uh, good good information. Uh, so our next paper for review is from an author in Israel, Tomer Zivbaran, PhD. And this one's focused on the evaluation of the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, or MOCA, uh, administered via video conference. And the purpose of this study was to evaluate the agreement between the use of the MOCA assessed face-to-face -face versus via video conference using a mobile phone. This was a randomized crossover study. And... Uh, essentially a randomly selected sample of patients uh, who were admitted to the geriatric rehab department in a large tertiary medical center were included in this study. This was done in 2021 and 22. The MOCA was conducted twice for each patient with a 10 to 20 day interval between assessments. Uh, to avoid a learning effect, the different versions of the MOCA were used for each patient. Uh, so multiple instruments were used to, ver to evaluate the agreement between administration methods. And to identify variables associated with low agreement, data on participant characteristics, order of administration methods, and test versions were collected. 
and both univariate and multivariate analyses were performed. So 44 patients were included in this study. Their median age was 83, 75% were females. The median overall MOCA score was 24 points when administered face-to-face, 23.5 points via video conference. Excellent agreement. So actually a 0.89 correlation uh, was observed in the total MOCA score. Moderate to substantial agreement was observed in subsection scores with a kappa of about uh, 0.44 to 0.69, except for the language subsection where fair agreement uh, was observed with a kappa of about 0.3. So the conclusion is that concluding, uh, or sorry, conducting a MOCA via video conference using a mobile phone is a reasonable alternative method of providing medical care to people who have no significant visual or hearing impairment that would restrict their use of the mobile phone, uh, both during routine times and perhaps especially in emergencies where physical distancing is advisable. Barb, your thoughts? Yeah. So this really, uh, again, is a great example of silver linings from COVID. The use of technology to facilitate these types of assessments really came because of COVID. Before that, uh, we we poo-pooed it, even phone evaluations, and there's a, a special phone assessment for an MMSE, but there's a lot of debate. So this study demonstrates that these types of assessments via uh, whether it's phone or an iPad or computer, they really can be done with some good accuracy. And I don't believe technology is going to fix all our problems, but certainly it can help with access and it's better than nothing, particularly, Carl, as you said, in those emergencies where we really want to evaluate if there's an acute change in cognition. And whoever, maybe it's a spouse with a a patient or even in a facility, uh, the folks there don't feel comfortable to do it. So great option and a nice study showing when we die. Yeah, I was actually kind of surprised at how close they were, especially, you know, sometimes somebody with cognitive uh, deficits and you're, you know, they're in the hospital uh, and or, or in a rehab, inpatient rehab of some kind. I mean, there might be a lot of variation in, in 10 to 20 days. Uh, so the fact that they were so closely correlated, I thought, uh, made it all the more compelling. So uh, anyway, our last paper for review today is a retrospective cohort study focused on the association between dental diseases and oral hygiene care uh, and the risk of dementia. This is by Ga Eun Nam from the Republic of Korea and their team. The purpose of this study was to investigate the association of dental diseases and oral hygiene with the risk of dementia. So a total of 2.5 million participants who underwent cardiovascular and dental screenings in 2008 were included. The cohort was followed up from the health screening date till the date of any incident dementia, death, or the end of the study period, which was the end of 2017, whichever came first. Dental diseases, including periodontal disease, dental caries, and tooth loss were assessed by dentists. Information on oral hygiene care, including professional dental cleaning and the frequency of toothbrushing, was collected using a self-administered questionnaire. The study outcomes here were all-cause dementia, Alzheimer's dementia, and vascular dementia. 
The results were that periodontal diseases, and this was an adjusted hazard ratio of 1.07, and uh, dental caries with a, uh, sorry, a a harm ratio of uh, 1.03, and between 8 and 14 missing teeth uh, with a hazard ratio of 1.07. These were associated with an increased risk of all-cause dementia. Uh, in contrast, uh, either professional dental cleaning or frequent toothbrushing were associated with decreased risks of all-cause dementia. Uh, the hazard ratio of about 0.91 uh, uh, for each and about 0.83 if you did both the professional cleanings and uh, frequent toothbrushing. So the increased risks associated with dental diseases were reduced by oral hygiene care. Uh, periodontal diseases with professional dental cleaning, uh, this uh, hazard ratio is 0.94. Uh, toothbrushing at least twice a day, uh, hazard ratio of 0.97. And one to seven missing teeth with professional dental cleaning, hazard ratio of 0.94. Uh, or toothbrushing two or more times a day, hazard ratio of 0.92. So uh, these aren't like uh, really crazy wild uh, uh, hazard ratios, but they are statistically significant. And uh, you know, there were consistent results noted uh, for uh, Alzheimer's, vascular, uh, and in various subgroup analyses. So the authors concluded that periodontal disease, dental caries, and a high number of missing teeth were independently associated with a higher risk of incident dementia. Conversely, improved oral hygiene care, uh, including professional dental cleaning and frequent toothbrushing, uh, may modify the risk of dementia associated with dental disease. So, Barb, uh, what do you think about this one? So, I mean, this paper really just serves as one more good reminder of the importance of oral care. I think more and more over the years, we've heard there's a focus um, and acceptance and understanding about the relationship between oral care and respiratory infections. The risk of oral care and dementia just adds to the importance of oral care. I do have a little bit of a causation issue here, uh, like what comes first, the chicken or the egg, because we know as cognition fails, one of the the things that we often see is a drop-off in personal care, including oral care. And if you're a bedside carer, you also know there's very often resistance to oral care, and it's quite a challenge to get folks to um, work with us to brush their own teeth or have us help. So the bottom line is, you know, I really hope that anyone listening, it's just a little nudge reminder to utilize innovative approaches to help people manage oral care among older adults, particularly those living with dementia. And I will say our functionfocuscare.org webpage provides some really nice uh, video examples for how to do that. So hang in there, it's a challenge, but clearly this is one more paper that shows oral care is important. Yeah, and, and I mean, there's so many other uh, other reasons. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, a, a diseased tooth can cause uh, such significant uh, pain and, and reduced oral intake and so on. And I think daily oral hygiene is important. 
uh, it can fall through the cracks for people who are unable to perform it independently uh, in our nursing homes. And as you said, there can really be a challenge. So uh, we should do what we can to ensure that our patients are getting both regular professional dental care and daily hygiene for so many reasons. Uh, this article definitely adds another consideration to support that. And Barb, you know, the, the sort of chicken and the egg thing, completely non-scientific uh, observation that I've had for decades is that um, out of the people that I see who live to be up into their 90s or over 100, it seems like a lot of them still have intact dentition. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it leads you to wonder, is this just because they picked their parents right? Or, or is it because they, uh, you know, in addition to taking care of their bodies, they took care of their teeth. And uh, a really uh, interesting question, but no doubt for for everyone, uh, taking good care of our teeth is a good idea, right? There is. And I would say a lot of that has probably been better dental care throughout life. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so that's going to wrap it up for our final Gem on the Go podcast of 2023. Thanks again to our guest presenter, Dr. John Tempty, for a great discussion uh, about rapid influenza testing. Uh, thanks, as always, to our editors and staff from Elsevier, whose efforts continue to generate one great gem to volume after another. Barb, thanks for all of your and Paul's great work all year long. Uh, so listeners, please take a look at the December 2023 issue. We want to thank all of you for your support of the podcast and of JAMDA and also for the important work you do caring for for the vulnerable uh, population of of, uh, older adults. And we wish each and every one of you a fabulous holiday season and a healthy, joy-filled, and successful 2024. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. That's www.jamda.com. Until next year, this is Dr. Carl Steinberg signing off for Jammed On To Go. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining a BPLM, pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Thank you.